Thank you, church, for praying together. Hope you have a Bible, and if you do, we're in Exodus chapter 20 tonight. Exodus 20, we're going to read the verse 7 verses um, before we get started into our study. Um, last week, we did a lot of talking um, about the lead-up to the Ten Commandments. Tonight, we're going to do a little more of an introduction to the Ten Commandments, um, why they matter, why they're here, and, and how they uh, relate and how they uh, speak to us all these years later. Um, and we're going to start um, by talking about the first three of the commandments that are contained in the first seven verses. So three commandments, seven verses, pretty simple. Add that up, you get ten. So chapter 20, verse number one. And the, Lord, and the God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved or graven image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keeping custom, keeping my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And we'll dive into those one by one in just a little bit. Um, but we established last week that the, uh, that the most important part of this chapter isn't any of the ten laws. Not that they aren't important, they are. The most important part of this chapter are not the Ten Commandments, but it's rather the introduction to the commandments. And if you want to know what the intent of the law is, you need to pay close attention to the introduction to the laws, particularly the way God introduces himself in this text. I am the Lord. What does it say? Your God, right? So when you read that, you can say, okay, this is, God is saying, I am the Lord, your God, my God, our God, I am the Lord, your God. So God begins this in a very personal way, right? With a very personal approach. He's not with his arms crossed on a throne with a bunch of, you know, in a, we're in a courtroom and he's introducing, you know, introducing himself to us in some sort of formal manner where, you know, there's some, all these security guards between us and him. He wants us to know from the beginning there's a personal relationship between the Jews, between Israel and him. And if that were not so, the rest would not even happen and would not even be in print. So that's very important. We decided that many, many people often rush past this introduction before God ever gives the first law, um, and, and that causes us to misunderstand what these commandments are all about and why they are given to us. So what we know from that introduction is there is already a relationship between God and the people of Israel. This is not about establishing a relationship. This is because there is an established relationship. And that is so important if we're going to understand what the purpose of these commandments are. And we clearly have been, if you've been paying attention, it's clear there is a relationship. God revealed himself. He parted them with the blood of the lamb. He parted the Red Sea. He fed them through the wilderness. He guided them with a cloud and with fire. So clearly, clearly, we can conclude that Exodus 20 wasn't or isn't a gateway isn't a gateway to relationship with God because Israel clearly already was in relationship with God leading into this chapter. So we can say that pretty confidently, right? That 
it is not a gateway to get into a relationship with God. This is not the, the gate you've got to pass through to turn to know God personally because the Jews, up until this point, already clearly know God personally. So our natural instant response is, I'm sure, maybe you're, you're sitting here thinking, well, what's the law for then? I mean, if they already have a relationship, then why are they getting laws? And, 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 and why are they being told this is what you should do? If they already are saved, then what's the purpose or what's the point of the law? Now, I don't think any of you have that question. You're smarter than that, but maybe that would be someone's response. Well, if I already am in, why do I got to obey or why does it matter what I do? Now, you know, law has a purpose in, our, in, in all different aspects of our life. Um, and if you think about it, um, our laws as a country, our laws as a country, um, you know, are for citizens of our country, for citizens of a, any given town, any given city, city, any given county. So the laws from top to bottom, if you wonder what are the laws of our country for, no one would ever suggest and no one would ever say that our laws are in place to grant someone American citizenship, right? We don't have laws so that if you obey them, you'll become an American. We have laws so that the Americans can maintain order with one another, right? The laws are for us are over us because we are a part of the country. So you can understand it this way. The law is not about getting access, but about maintaining order. The laws are not for people who aren't already in. The laws are for people who are already in any given country, any given system, any given uh, movement, so that the order can be maintained, not so that access can be gained. Now, if we go back to our text and back to the scenario between God and Israel, we can take this a step further back into the context. Therefore, the Ten Commandments is not a religious gate, but it's a relational and they're relational guardrails. Does that make sense? They are not a gate that you've got to pass through in order to become a part of the family, but they're guardrails to make sure you maintain a good status, a healthy status, a well status in the relationship. And hopefully that gives you that little aha moment in your minds, and you think, aha, the law wasn't given to save, it was given to keep safe. A relationship preceded the rules, and the rules were put in place to protect the relationship. Now this is so important to talk about because so many Christians don't understand this. And it's because people like me have not taught it properly, and not explained it as it's laid out in the Bible. Now, this foreshadows and makes very clear an aspect of God that would always be true. Always true about God. You can write this one down and bet on it. God, who is a perfect, good, and loving Father, restores the relationship before He ever attempts to reframe the person. God does not walk into any of our lives and say, fix this, change that, stop that, start this. He is worried about restoring the relationship between you and Him before He's worried about making sure that you are reframed and rebuilt and rewired and repurposed. He wants to restore your heart before He starts telling you what to do and where to go and how to live. He is more interested in a relationship with you than he is the stuff that you can do for him or do for somebody else. Because he's a father above and above, above and beyond everything about him. And that, we know that from all, both old and new. Now notice verse number one and two clearly says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of bondage. 
Now, God gave the law to those he had saved to keep them from getting enslaved again. That's a pretty simple thing to understand. And as Christians, this comes to us into even clearer light, I believe, because we are saved through Jesus. Nothing else but the entire Word of God is our counsel and our guidebook as to what we should do and what we should not do. Saved by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone, but the whole book is ours to guide us and to direct us and to teach us. Likewise, as they had been saved and sealed, this was how God was leading them to live their new life and realize their new potential. God will spend the next several years for the Jews teaching them to walk in this new identity. And he often reminds them, he says, your tendency, your temptation, your, 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 your drift is to, is to go back into slave mode, go back into that slave mentality. But I want to remind you, I've set you free and I've made you a different person. Now, I, I mentioned this last week, but I want to talk about it a little bit up front here because I think it's so important as we get deeper into the, the, the talk. Romans 6 is, is, is so helpful in understanding um, how the Word of God and the commandments of God relate to us as saved people, being saved by grace but under the counsel of God. Romans 6, um, Paul uses this Exodus language to help talk about how we have been saved but talk about how we and what we have been saved to and how we can realize that purpose and potential God has put in us. So listen to what Romans 6 verse number 11 says. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now consider means making a mental note, making a mental decision that I have been set free I have been made alive. I am dead to the old way. I'm alive to the new way. And Paul says this is so important because there's something in you that's going to always drift a little bit. There's something in you that's going to forget that God has made you new, that God has set you free. And you need to consider, you need to remember, you need to put this helmet on and strap it tight to remind yourself, I am dead to sin. I am freed from bondage. I'm alive in Christ, and that gives me limitless potential. He says in verse 12, Let not, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So what's Paul saying? What's the, the, the key uh, commandment in that verse? Let not, as in, we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. Do we let sin, do we let our flesh you know, take control once again and make us, right? What does it say? Make us obey its passions? Paul says, God forbid, by all means, no. Do not present yourselves, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. So notice the contrast. Do not present yourself to sin, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, brought out of slavery to salvation, and present your members to God as instruments, as an item that God knows how to play perfectly and bring the most beautiful sound out of as instruments to God for righteousness. Now, again, let not sin reign. Present yourselves to God. This is why we need the Word. This is why we need the law of God, all the commandments of God, the teaching of Jesus from front to back. All of it instructs us what is right and what is wrong. Now, there are things that have been cleared up in the New Testament that supersede some of the dietary law of the Old Testament. There are some things in the law concerning the uh, civil order of Israel that doesn't translate to us because we're not ancient Israel in the ancient world. But 
overall, the entire Old Testament can be brought into light under the new that we can learn from it and learn how to present ourselves to God and not to sin. That we might would live in light of the freedom that God has given us. And that's why James calls the law the law of liberty. Because he says obedience to God's word actually frees you. In Romans 6.14, Paul concludes that whole conversation like this. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. And even the Jews, even the Jews were never, they were never under law. They were under grace. How do I know that? Because they were in a relationship with God. And if you're under God, you're under grace. Paul is not contrasting to the old. He is clarifying the old that God was in a relationship with Israel. He was enabling them, not just seeking to control them. So as we study the Ten Commandments, we frame them under the one commander. The one commander revealed to Moses and Israel as Yahweh, the God we can know, the God you can know. And we are so fortunate... We're so fortunate, and it's really, it's really almost uh, kind of uh, wrong, right, that we are so blessed, and the, the, the ancients just had a glimpse of it, right? They just had a partial view of it. And again, we don't have a perfect understanding of anything, but on this side of Jesus, with the complete revelation of God, knowing all that we know, not that we're smarter than anybody, but we're so fortunate to have the whole complete Word of God spelled out so clearly for us, with the new giving so much insight to the old, we're so fortunate because Yahweh revealed Himself to us through His Son. God made flesh. Literally, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. And remember how John introduces to Jesus. In John verse 1, number 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So God, John is saying, remember the God you can know that Moses was taught about? The God you can know that Exodus tells us about? Jesus has made God known to us. So if you want to know God, look at Jesus. Study and follow Jesus. So Jesus gives us clarity. He gives us a more complete understanding and grasp of all the Old Testament. Yes, it's old insofar that it's before Jesus, but that doesn't mean we... Consider it less of God's Word or less inspired. Yes, the Old Testament is incomplete without the New. But with the New, it's fulfilled. With the New, it has so much value to us. Because, again, it's the full counsel of God's Word. Now, I want to make this clear because you may have heard me say things before that you're thinking, why haven't you contradicted yourself and haven't you talked about the old in a more, not negative, but in a more, it's past and, and we've moved beyond it and it's no longer applicable for us. So I want to clarify um, that we should not confuse and we cannot confuse the Old Testament with the Old Covenant. Now, Old Testament, by that I mean the old bo the books of the Bible, Genesis to Malachi. We cannot confuse the Old Testament with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is the grounds for God blessing or cursing Israel. The only people under the Old Covenant were the was the nation of Israel. Nobody else had a chance to even get in with God. The Old Covenant was set in place on Mount Sinai. We're going to read about it. And it was a conditional, if you do this, then I'll do that, contract God had with Israel. They had to please God through sacrifice and good works, but that covenant has been replaced. It has been erased. 
God made a covenant with the whole world through Jesus, right? Based on what Jesus did for us, not what we do at all for Him. But the Old Testament, which is really a misnomer because it really just refers to the books that were written before Jesus came, the Old Testament are still God's Word. Genesis to Malachi, they are absolutely God's Word, inspired as anything that come in the New. Now, hear this carefully. Only Exodus, really a third of Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those are the books that prop up the Old Covenant. But even those books, alongside the rest of the Old Testament, even those books point to another new covenant that would come and replace the Old Covenant. So, again, Jews would say it's so blasphemous and it's so heretical and it's so arrogant for Christians to come, come, come along and take our book and claim it's theirs. Now, I, I don't you know, say this in any disrespect toward the Jews that believe the Old Testament is the only testament, but we believe because Jesus said it and because the Bible has, you know, the New Testament proves it and we follow the word as God has given it to us, old and new, we don't have a problem saying the old's ours too, right? But there's a whole group of people out there, they look at the old as if it's the only book, the only, uh, you know, part of God's Word. But you've got to understand, if that's the only lens that you look through, and if you never have read the, old te- the New Testament, even the Old Testament admits and points to a new covenant, a better covenant. Jeremiah is one of the examples when he says, when God says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with Israel and with Judah and going forward with the whole world. So the Old Testament books were temporary props for the Old Covenant, but they, were, they are permanent blocks in the foundation of the New Covenant. So I hope that makes sense. I know when I use all those different names, it can kind of blur it together in your head. But to kind of summarize it like this, Jesus and the New Covenant replaces the Old Covenant, the covenant that says you do this and God will do that. The New Covenant says God did it for you. So Jesus replaces the Old Covenant. However, Jesus doesn't make the Old Testament books out of date, but rather he updates them. And it's very important. If we take them without understanding the New Testament and the lens that we get, we, 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 we have with it, we might get in some trouble because otherwise you'll be sacrificing you know, lambs and goats and blowing trumpets and doing all these things that you know, doesn't have a place anymore. Of course, there, is been, there has been an update. There has been an update, but they are still God's Word and we still have so much we can learn from them as long as we take them through Jesus and understand what Jesus shows us through them. So if you're still wondering... While we're taking a very specific approach to the, to the Ten Commandments, I think it's a very important thing that we take this sort of delicate and serious look at them and look at them through this lens because so many just open up the Ten Commandments and say, well, these are the things you've got to do to get saved. And if you don't do these, you're lost. So many look at the Ten Commandments as if they are a means of salvation. If I do this, God will be happy. If I don't do this, God will be mad. But that's not how we, are, that, but that's not how we understand the Ten Commandments or really any commandment in the Bible, should not be understood in a if I do this, God will do that way. And we know this. Our standing with God is based on Jesus and Jesus alone. If you never obey God ever again, that is not going to impact your standing with Him. Jesus determines your standing with Him. Not what you do or what you don't do. And that's how amazing God is, right? Now, you can say, well, if I'm in with God, I'll do this. Of course you will. But your standing with God is based on what Jesus did, not what you do. Under the old covenant, our stance with God was conditional. Under the new covenant, our stance with God is unconditional. And this kind of gets overlooked. 
I think we think, well, the new covenant is what it, you know, get, allows God to love us. Let me make it clear. God has always loved people. That didn't just happen in the New Testament, right? God is, God's love has always been unconditional. Love is what compelled and moved Him to make a way for us. The Old Testament is just Him getting the stage set so that everybody in the world could hear it. And eventually they did. And it wasn't long after Jesus died, the whole world was aware of why He died. For God so loved the world. He loved the world before the world was saved, before Jesus died for the world. He loved the world. So again, our standing with Him is not based on what we do or what we haven't done, but based on His love and what He did because of His love through Christ. The Old Covenant was never meant to be the final way. It always pointed to a new way. So lest we misunderstand and mishandle the Ten Commandments because so many evangelicals, so many Baptists, so many anybody that's in a Christian church, so many people misunderstand and miscommunicate the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, they do not save us. They've never saved anybody. And they never will. We can't keep them. Nobody ever has, except Jesus. And because Jesus obeyed God, because Jesus died for us, because Jesus lives within us, therefore God's law can lead and can Guide us. So how should you approach the Ten Commandments? I've got good news. The Ten Commandments are not a do-or-die scenario. Because Jesus said it's done and died. The Ten Commandments no longer are this stipulation that if you do this, you'll be fine. If you don't, you'll be dead. Because Jesus came and died for us. And just before He died, He said it is finished. So we are saved because of Jesus, and we have the ability to do what God has said because of Jesus. To put it simply, as Christians, we are saved by Christ, and we open God's Word for a wind and fire from the Spirit to live through Christ. That, I hope that makes sense, that we are saved by Jesus, and we still open God's Word, and the Ten Commandments like we do any other text, we open every chapter of the Bible saying there is wind and fire from God to fill our hearts and help us live through Jesus. And the Ten Commandments, uh, as in every chapter is inspired equally, but this chapter, very important, very practical, very foundational, one of the pillars of our faith, where there is plenty of wind and fire to catch. So we'll finish by briefly going over these first three commandments in light of what we've just talked about. So here's what I want to do. Um, I'm not presenting them as written, but I'll, I've, I've kind of extrapolated the key ideas from these first three commandments. We've already established there's no other way besides God's way. There's no other way besides Jesus in His way. And because there's no other way, the first three commandments communicate three very important things to us. Because there's no other way, there's no other gods... There's no other image, and there's no other name. So I want you to hear these. When you read the first three commandments, I want you to hear this. No other God, no other image, no other name. There's no other way, therefore there's no other gods, there's no other image, and there's no other name. Now verse 3 seems kind of silly, doesn't it? 
you shall, know, you, ha- you shall have no other gods before me. After God reminds them, I brought you out of Egypt, why would the Jews ever bow to any other god? Why would they do that? Why would, after all Yahweh has done for them, it makes no sense. Why would they need a commandment telling them don't worship anybody else when they have all the proof in the world that Yahweh is, is their one true God? Yet, isn't it true that they would bow and they would turn to plenty of other gods, wouldn't they? And you think, why would they do that? But isn't it true? In our world, we don't have a God on every corner like the ancients did. We don't have a God for this and a God for that. But we are smarter. We're so intellectual. We don't worship rocks and images and shrines, but we worship plenty of things, don't we? We fold them up and put them in our wallets. We have screens with plenty of things behind those screens that are objects of our attention and our worship. We fill arenas, we go this place and that place, and we offer up our praise and our audible sounds. We have plenty of things that we worship, don't we? We keep them in bottles in our cabinets. We hide them so no one else can find them. We go and see them and we go and visit them. We have plenty of gods, don't we? But I ask you, The same question I would ask a Jew this side of the Red Sea. Why would you ever worship another God after Yahweh did so much for you? Why would they do that? Same reason we do it. But how could they do that the same way we do it? Yahweh didn't give them what they wanted. So they would find another God who would give them what they wanted. When God doesn't give us what we want... We find a God who will give us what we want. And we do as much as we have to do to get what we're looking for from them, don't we? We vote. We pay. We drink. We cheer. We do whatever we've got to do to get what we want. This really breaks down when they viewed Yahweh as just a God. Yahweh was not and is not just a God. He was their God. He was their Father. He was their Savior. He was their Creator and their Life Giver. He was more than just a God that you put a quarter in His machine and He gives you what you want. He was their Life Giver. He was their Creator. He was their Savior. He was their Father He wasn't just a machine that dispensed things. He was a father, a God, a creator that ordered all things. He always wanted and always wants what's best for his children. If we believe the lie that he's holding things back from us or withholding something from us, I've preached this before because there is a temptation. There is a temptation to condense Yahweh down from our father to our genie. See, when God's our father... He knows what's best. And we know that we can go to him and we can talk to him about anything we need to talk to him about, but we also know that he knows best for us and I'm going to defer to his will over my will because he has a better understanding than I do. And even if he says no, I'm going to say yes because he knows best. 
But there's this temptation to turn our father into our genie that lives in a lamp that we hook on our side. And when we rub that lamp, he gives us what we want. And if he doesn't give us what we want, there's plenty of other genies, there's plenty of other lamps that we can go and pick up, and they'll give us what we want. But Yahweh has no rival, he has no equal, he's not an option, he's the only, right? He's sovereign, he's a savior, he's a cosmic force, and he's a creator, and he's our father. He's not a God, he's the God, he's our God, he's our father, and when we focus on this and walk in step with him as he intends, we won't consider bowing to any other or trusting in any other. But that's so important that we not forget He is not just a God. It's personal. He's not an option. He's the only. The next commandment is actually God's way of always reminding us our connection with Him. Verse number four, you all know it very well. You shall not make a carved image or a graven image of God. Now, I put this under the title, No Other Image. And you may say, well, no, this says no image at all. Why was God anti-image? But I'll say this, he wasn't anti-image. In fact, I believe there's a very important, often overlooked message here. Because let me remind you, in Genesis 1, verse number 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you can't read verse number three and I, verse number 4 and isolate it and say, well, God says there should be no image of him. No, no, no. He says you should not make an image of me out of wood or stone or out of some sort of idol. This is not saying there are not, are, there are not images of God. There are plenty of images of God. There are seven billion images of God on this planet right now. So you see what God's trying to say here? This was the moral compass that God established in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, really the only moral compass, the only law they had in the old days, and God reminded Noah of this when they got off the ark. And notice how God presents this to Noah. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Noah. Here's the one commandment that you should live by. Don't mistreat anybody because everybody you're ever eyeball to eyeball with, I made them. And you know how you know I made them? Because they look like you. You're all made in my image. And you don't need an idol, and you don't need a shrine, and you don't need a picture because everybody you ever come eyeball to eyeball with is a reminder of who made all of you. So why does God say no image in verse number 4? I think if we could rephrase this commandment, taking some liberty, God would say this. God didn't want us to confine him to a rock when he's already present in flesh. This is less a commandment that we should have no image and more of a commandment that there, are, there is already an image and there should be no other image other than, other than every other person we ever see on any given day. We are all made in His image. We share that. So how we treat one another, how we use one another, how we understand and value one another should be determined by our shared Creator. We are all in God's image. It's as if God is saying to us, don't shrink me down to a trinket or an idol. I'm as alive as your neighbor. I'm all of y'all's creator. So, I mean, these first two commandments really just take care of the whole, all of them, don't they? No other gods. And watch how you treat one another. Because how you treat one another reflects how you think 
of me. And Jesus would take this to the very logical step when he said that you are, you tell people, you expose your faith by how you love, right? So we believe as Christians that horizontal love, horizontal love authenticates and communicates vertical faith. Don't tell me you have faith if you don't have love. James says that. John says that. Jesus said that. Every New Testament writer says that. The Old Testament says that. Horizontal love authenticates, communicates vertical faith and really takes care of every commandment that could ever come after it. No other God, no other image, and lastly, lastly, but not least, no other name. Verse number seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We should not take the name of God in vain because there's no other name by which we are redeemed, by which we are saved. The name of God is sacred. So watch how you use it. Now, this is more. This is more than just about attaching curse words to God's name. Though that's an awful, despicable thing to do. And oh, by the way, just any words that are filthy or hurtful or indecent ought not to ever grace any one of our tongues, whether they evoke God's name or not. Amen? Amen. We can amen that one all night. That's the stuff the New Testament says we ought to purge out from among us. And like your mama put it, Wash it off your tongue if you have to. It's not the words you say, but it's the heart that brings them out that matters. Our words reveal our heart, right? And listen, this isn't, say, this isn't me saying, hey, don't say bad words because God's going to get you. It's don't say that stuff because God is with you. <laughs> Why would you want to quench his spirit? But Jesus said, Jesus said, well, I'll tell you why you say those words. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth just pours them out. If you don't know that, get on the interstate and see what comes out, right? But this isn't just about dirty or bad words. This is about invoking God's name, about invoking God's name in a way that might bring him shame. This is why the Jews eventually decided they would never use God's name at all. We talked about Yahweh last week and how nobody knows how it's really said because they don't know how they spelled it because nobody was, everybody was afraid to write it. To this day, Jews, English-speaking Jews will write G-D because they don't even want to attempt to mention God's name because they're afraid they're going to say it in vain. Now, that's a little extreme, but you can understand, hey, they're just taking care of their bases. God's name to the Jews, according to this text, cannot be removed or detached from his person, his presence, and his power. So when we talk about God, we are in essence bringing his person, his presence, and his power into the conversation. That should be a good thing. It is a good thing. But if we're being frivolous or flippant or loose with God's name or things that pertain to his name, we aren't taking serious who he is, where he is, and what he can do. When we invoke God's name, we should do so in an intentional, inviting, and worshipful way. We talk about God, we're talking about the most high King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of the world. There's no other name by which we must be saved. So when we invoke the name above all names, we ought to be inviting Him, intentionally worshiping Him, exalting Him, because there's no other name. And there's no other image. And there's no other God. There's no other way. 
The summation of all of this, God is personal, God is intimate, God is alongside us and within us and wants us to realize this and live in light of his person, his presence, and his power. And if we only followed those three simple commandments, how different the world might be. How different you and I might be. Let me pray for you. Father, first of all, we are so privileged and fortunate that we're not saved by our obedience to these commandments. Because if it was up to us to always get it right, we would never have a chance. But God, because Jesus made a way, and because he gave us the way, and because there is no other way but, but Jesus, because we are saved, because the Spirit of God has moved into our hearts, and we've got wind and fire coming from heaven, we look at these commandments, and we realize, wow, this is very sacred and very serious. Because there's no other God, and there's no other image, and there's no other name. So, Father, I pray that this would be heavy on us tonight. And I pray that we might would understand that if we just followed these three simple commandments, it would take care of our behavior toward one another. It would take care of the way we represent you. It would take care of the way we respond to you. We would be the most delightful people, the most loving people, and the most dedicated people if we obeyed these three commandments. So, Father, I challenge us, and I pray that you would challenge me and every one of us to look at these three commandments and think, wow, there's no other name, there's no other image, there's no other, there's no other God, there's no other way. Father, thank you for making this so clear to us tonight, and thank you for giving us something that we can hold in our hands and say, I know what I gotta do, and I know how I gotta do it. So I don't have an excuse. Father, I love you. I pray that you would purify me from my eyes to my tongue to my hands to my feet. I pray that you would purge anything from within us, Lord, that is withholding us from honoring and glorifying you in all that we do. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.